It's good to see you guys this morning. For those of you who came on Friday night, we had a great time fellowship together, some, some good food. Thanks to the Chubbs. They were wonderful, hospitable hosts. I think that's a little too much repetition in that sentence, but they were very hospitable, and we're grateful for, for them and grateful for just the time with you guys. It's always a, a joy to just fellowship together. And it is also a joy <clears throat> to come to the end of chapter four today. So I think sometimes you guys probably wonder, can this guy ever find the end of a chapter? Well, today's that day, Lord willing. We will come to the end of chapter four and begin the final chapter, which I can't believe in First Peter next Sunday. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to First Peter chapter four, we'll be looking at part three of a message that I have entitled, Suffer Well for Christ. We'll read our text again to get us back into the, the context here, and then we will unpack these final few verses. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 12, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God be? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also... Who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. As we get back into our study regarding suffering, I was encouraged this week looking at the life of Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Reformed Puritan who lived during the early 1600s. He became both a professor and a pastor by his mid-twenties, and he was committed to preach Christ. In 1627, he became the pastor of a small church in Anwath, a church where John Welsh, the son-in-law of John Knox, had pastored just a couple decades earlier. In an excerpt from the story of the Scottish church by Thomas McCry. It was said of Rutherford that he, quote, worked effectively and tirelessly for his congregation for nearly a decade. One aged contemporary pastor wrote, I have known many great and good ministers in this church, but for such a piece of clay as Mr. Rutherford was, I never knew one in Scotland like him, to whom so many great gifts were given, for he seemed to be altogether taken up with everything good and excellent and useful. He seemed to always be praying, always preaching, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing and studying. Many times I thought he would have flown 
out of the pulpit when he came to speak of Jesus Christ. He was never in his right element, but when he was commending him, he would have fallen asleep in bed speaking of Christ. And though he faithfully shepherded his congregation, Rutherford was was not without great afflictions. In an excerpt from Meet the Puritans, it recounts this. It says, his years in Anwath, though, were fraught with affliction. The comfort his ministry and letters brought to thousands was forged in the crucible of personal losses. His wife, Euphemy, died in 1630 while suffering intensely for 13 months. With the exception of one daughter, all the children she and Rutherford had died at an early age. Rutherford himself fell seriously ill with a high fever about this time. Then in 1635, Rutherford's mother, who had come to live with them, also died. And unfortunately, Rutherford was was also persecuted extensively during his ministry. In the 1630s, because of his fight against Arminianism, he was in conflict with church authorities, which were dominated by the English episcopacy. He was called before the high court in July 1636. After a three-day trial, he was deprived of his ministerial office, forbidden to preach anywhere in Scotland, and he was confined to Aberdeen. Aberdeen was a bastion of Arminianism, was committed to the episcopacy, and was strongly opposed to the reformed Presbyterianism Rutherford held dear. All of that, plus being separated from his congregation, was a sore trial for Rutherford. Sundays, it says, were particularly difficult. You can imagine. However, it was during this difficult time of exile that Rutherford penned many letters to his congregation in Anwath for the purpose of encouraging them to grow in Christ-likeness. These letters were, were preserved down through the years, and they were treasured. In fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of his letters, when we are dead and gone, let the world know that Spurgeon held Rutherford's letters to be the nearest thing to inspiration, which can be found in all the writings of mere men. Those letters formed into one of the Puritan paperbacks that we have today, sitting on my shelf, maybe sitting on many of your shelves. It is in one of those letters regarding affliction that we find these words of great encouragement It helps center our thoughts back into this text this morning. He said this. He said, if your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed. For he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among thorns. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ, for he has a sweet peace for a sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side. And if the wind is now in his face, you cannot expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven, he says, without a cross. 
crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for your glory. We need winnowing before we enter the kingdom of God. Oh, what I owe to the file, hammer, and furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. Now, as we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. If we could smell of heaven and our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all. He can, he does, and he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage. I am your salvation. Welcome, welcome, Jesus. Those amazing words. And that's where we ended last time, isn't it? Realizing that as we suffer on behalf of Christ, that we are highly privileged because we have Christ and because we are counted worthy to suffer for his sake. As he said there in verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. He is to glorify God by wearing the name of Christ as a badge of honor. Well, by way of reminder, we are in the midst of receiving three pastoral insights regarding suffering that challenge us to stand firm in the furnace of distress. We saw in verses 12, 13, the right response to suffering. You know, we saw last time in verses 12 through 16, the blessed road of suffering. And for the remainder of our time here this morning, I want you to note a third pastoral insight that we find here at the end of this chapter in verses 17 through 19, which is this, the just reasons for suffering. Look again at verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those be who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In these verses, we find three reasons for why we must encounter suffering and persecution in this life that strengthen our resolve to endure it. We can see that Peter is giving us these reasons by that conjunction there at the beginning of verse 17 that is translated for. That little word for there at verse 17, beginning of verse 17, indicates for us that that this, what he's about to spell out is the cause of the suffering that, that Peter has just rehashed in, in verses 12 through 16. And the first reason for suffering we find 
There in the first part of verse 17 is this. It is to purify the household of God. To purify the household of God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, Peter says. God's judgment begins with God's people. We know that God has a special love that he has lavished upon those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, those he purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and those he has sealed with his Holy Spirit. We know that believers are God's adopted children. And as his children, we have a loving father who has saved us to make us into the image of his perfect son. God has saved his people unto holiness. And as a result, God must lovingly discipline his children for the purpose of purging their remaining sin that they continually encounter in the flesh. We need the discipline of God, just like children need the discipline of their earthly parents. And discipline is unique, isn't it? I love you guys. I love the children of this church. I love my nieces and nephews and so many children that I'm associated with. I love them. But I don't love any of you all as much as I love my own children. As much as I love my kids that God has given me to shepherd and to steward. And so though we may interact and I may interact with other people's children and and they might need correction, you might need correction. The correction that I give is going to be much different to you than it is to my own children. I'm going to spend a, a very dedicated time to my child who has just sinned, disciplining that child and explaining to them the reason for that discipline and explaining to them that I love them and that's the reason I'm doing this. And more importantly, I'm explaining to them that God loves them. And I'm reiterating to them the reality of the gospel because I have a special love for those kids that is different than any other love that I have for anybody else's kids. It's very similar in terms of God's love for his children. Yes, God loves the world. We know that. John 3.16 is abundantly clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that love to the world is expressed in his common grace. It is expressed in the fact that, that we get to wake up and breathe and live. That we get this planet to, to enjoy. That we get to have relationships and and encounter those good things that God has created, that he created to be good. God's love is expressed to the world as a whole in the fact that they get to wake up in the morning. They they aren't dead. (laughs) They get air to breathe. But there's a special love that God has for his people. And that special love has been set upon his people in eternity past. And it was proven and it was shown and it was manifested in Christ coming and living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death and raising again on the third day on behalf 
of his people. There is a deep, deep love that we sing about that God has for his children above and beyond that he has for anybody else. And friends, as a loving father, as a loving father, he must discipline his children. Hebrews 12 tells us that God faithfully disciplines those he loves. This is what Peter means by, by judgment here in this verse. As he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Particularly here in verse 17, this is God's discipline, which is for the purpose of, of refining the believer's faith. This judgment pictures the final judgment that will come in the eschaton. And it reminds believers that though God is their loving father, he is also their judge. And this suffering that, that comes by way of, of God's discipline, it, it gives proof that we belong to the family of God. And that's, that brings us great security, doesn't it? Listen to Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. The writer says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God brings suffering into the believer's life to provide the believer security that you belong to him as a legitimate son or daughter. Uh, consider the kindness of God in that. Consider the kindness of God and the fact that he doesn't let us as his children just roam. <laughs> yep, there may be seasons where we do. There may be seasons where we make a lot of bad decisions. But as his legitimate children, he will discipline us. He will bring us back, so to speak, to the narrow path. Sometimes that's a slap on the wrist, so to speak. And sometimes that's a two by four to the head. But the reality is God will bring his children to conformity to Jesus Christ. And so as you suffer in this life at times, sometimes for your own doing, for sinful choices, sometimes at the hands of somebody else, sometimes even through persecution, means like that. You need to understand that Peter is saying here in verse 17 that God brings that into believers' life, lives to purify them, to conform them more to the image of Christ. And that is the kindness of God to us. Because in this judgment of the household of God, he uses suffering to compel believers to make a total break with sin, doesn't he? We've been justified. Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. We are being sanctified. We are being purified. Practically speaking, 
We still live in the flesh. We still have this, this remnant of flesh that is sin-stained, that is corrupted, that must be continually dealt with. And so God uses suffering in the life of believers to strip away that sinfulness that still remains in our flesh. He uses that suffering to cause us in our minds to remember the gospel and to remember that I'm not perfect, but I want to strive in this life to make a total break with sin. I don't want to be controlled by any element of sin in this life. I want to be like Christ. He uses suffering in that way. You see, suffering, regardless of what kind it is, provides us with a vivid portrait of the ugliness and the destruction of sin, doesn't it? We look at suffering in our world, we look at suffering in our own lives, and we don't think good things about that. We don't think good things about what's happening in the Middle East, about what's happening in parts of Europe and parts of Africa and parts of our own country when we see people who are suffering immensely and intensely. We think that's horrible. We see images on the news and we think this is horrific. What in the world is going on out there? And it is in those moments we are reminded that suffering is ugly and that it brings destruction. It highlights the complete fallenness of our world. And so God uses it to do that for us. As we look at suffering, specifically in our text in our own lives, but as we look at suffering in general, the reality of that suffering causes us to understand that this world is broken and corrupt and that our lives are broken and corrupt with sin and that we need Christ more than anything else. And as those who who belong to Jesus, as, as this complete fallenness of our world is highlighted through suffering, as those who belong to Jesus and, and who think biblically, it causes us to see that suffering for what it is, and it purifies us. It gives us a deeper hatred for sin and a greater desire to do whatever it takes to overcome that sin. Consider this in terms of persecution. Persecution pries our hands off of the luxuries of the world and the temporary pleasures of sin and forces us to cling to Christ and his glory. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But this is what was happening to these believers who Peter was writing to. They were under fire. They were in distress. They were in the furnace. And so this suffering had come upon them. And 
and God was doing all these things. And for these believers, he was, he was purifying them. He was judging the household of God. He was, it began with the household of God first, by because he loves his people. He was purifying them. And so the question is this. Are you allowing the suffering in your life to do its work of purification and push you more towards Christ? As you encounter various elements of, of suffering, specifically here, persecution, but suffering in general, as, as you encounter that, as you deal with that, as you have to engage with that because you live in a fallen world and, and that's what's happening, are you allowing that to have its perfect work of purification done in your heart and to push you more towards Christ? Or, or are you resistant and living in a state of bitterness because life is not what you want it to be? Isn't that where we too often go? When the suffering begins, when the difficulty begins, when the, when the furnace heats up, we tend to become a little unhappy with those circumstances, do we not? And no doubt, if you're like me, you have a question or two for God that you want him to answer. And the reality is, as believers who understand this text, that we are to look at that suffering and say, Lord, this is not good. This is not how you originally created this earth. This suffering is a result of sin. This suffering is hard on this world. This suffering is really hard on my life right now. And I don't like it. But I trust you. And I love you. And I want you to use it because you are a sovereign shepherd who can do whatever he wants. I want you to use it to conform me more to the image of Christ. That's what our life is about. So it is to purify the household of God. And this leads us then to a second reason for suffering that we see in the second part of verse 17 and verse 18. And if it begins with us first, Peter says, uh, the second reason that Peter gives is, is to condemn those who have rejected the gospel. The second reason for suffering that he explains to us in this text is to condemn those who have rejected the gospel. Peter's statement there at the end of verse 17 makes a, a comparison and indicates that the judgment to come for those who don't obey the gospel will be exponentially greater than the judgment God brings on his people. And it's a different kind of judgment. It's not a judgment from a loving father. This is a judgment from a righteous judge. This judgment is related to the unbeliever's final outcome, which, which we know is the great white throne, where all who are judged are sentenced to eternity in hell. And they are judged on the basis of, Peter says, of not obeying the gospel of God. Not obeying the gospel of God. Now, a couple of things to point out about the way Peter phrases this. 
First, the, the emphasis in the original is on the reality that the truth they are rejecting is God's gospel. The emphasis here is on God here in the second part of verse 17. They are rejecting God's gospel. This gospel belongs to God. This does not belong to man. This does not belong to man's own imagination. This gospel does not belong to the world. It doesn't get to be defined by the world and by by the culture at large. Friends, this gospel is not up for debate. It is not to be altered by any person's individual any person's individual opinion or belief. This gospel is God's gospel and it is final. This gospel doesn't change according to the cultural whims of the day as so many quasi-evangelicals are trying to do. They are trying to shift the gospel of grace that is communicated in the word of God to this gospel of wokeness, to this gospel of good works, to this gospel that is defined by by anything other than the word of God itself. This gospel, friends, is defined only by God. It is sourced in God. There is no changing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ... They are rejecting God himself, Peter says. And they are are rejecting the means that he has prescribed for sinful man to be made right with a holy God. Second, unbelievers reject the gospel by not obeying the commands of the gospel to repent and to believe in Christ. You see that there. As he makes this comparison, he says, and what what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The gospel is certainly a message that is to be proclaimed. We proclaim the gospel. We declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God saves sinners. But the gospel is also a command that is to be obeyed. Now, this concept of being disobedient to the gospel was was used earlier by Peter in in chapter 2, verse 8. He said they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Well, Peter continues on here in, in verse 18 to further explain this greater judgment by referencing Proverbs 11.31, where Solomon states this same comparison to draw out the emphasis on the judgment of the disobedient. Look at verse 18. He says, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. The and there at the beginning of verse 18 connects the thoughts of verses 17 and 18. And then Peter restates the comparison just in different words. 
And this difficulty that he references here, the difficulty that the righteous are saved, this difficulty that he references that the righteous are saved by speaks of the difficulties that the righteous have to endure in this life because they are God's children. Right? We all experience difficulties. We just talked about the reality that we live in a fallen world. And we still have the flesh that is corrupt, is waiting for that final redemption when we will be like Christ. And there are many difficulties that, that we endure. There are many difficulties that we endure because of just suffering in general. There are many difficulties that we endure because of being persecuted by those who hate God, hate Christ, hate his word. And so for a Christian, even as Rutherford was referencing in that excerpt of that letter, you know, for us as believers to, to enter heaven without trials is just, it's unbeknown to us. That's not something we should ever expect. You were not saved to live your best life now. You were not saved to have all of the health, wealth, and prosperity that you could possibly have on this planet. You know that. We tell you that a lot. You were saved to be holy. You were saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. You were saved with the anticipation of the eternal reward that, eternal reward that awaits you, which is the presence of Christ and everything that, that comes from that. So this life is not promised to you to be easy. And so Peter's just pointing that out that as he makes this comparison that it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, that you go through the difficulties of this life, but your eventual reward as a person who goes through this life as a follower of Jesus, your eventual reward is insurmountable. It's not worthy to be compared to the sufferings of this life. Isn't that what Paul said? He, he said that, that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that we have when we are with Christ. And so your reward is going to be exponential. Your reward is going to be, to be infinitely better than the sufferings that you experience in this life. And so Peter is pointing that out. He says, it's with difficulty the righteous is saved. But he's not saying, this phrase does not indicate a works-based salvation through perseverance. He's not saying that. He's not saying that, that you are earning your salvation going through the difficulties of this life. That's not what Peter is saying here. Yes, true believers will persevere to the end. We firmly believe in the perseverance of the saints. But that perseverance comes from God who enables us to endure by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's Philippians 2, isn't it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yep, we are to strive, we are to give every effort to the sanctification process, persevering in this life, persevering to the very end. But verse 13 says, it is God who works in and through you to accomplish this. God is the power, he's the engine behind the train. <laughs> it's moving, he's... God is the one. If you persevere to the end, it's because God gets you there. But the same parallel truth is that you will persevere to the end. <laughs> so you will persevere, but God will hold you fast. But the reality is what Peter is not saying is that that perseverance earns you, earns you favor with God. That's not what he's saying. 
He's just talking about the difficulty we go through in this life before we come to the end of our full salvation. The righteous being referred to here are those who are justified by faith. And then this difficulty that Peter references is, is preferred. <laughs> Obviously, you look at verse 18, and the first part of verse 18 is preferred, right? In comparison to the second part of verse 18, which says, then what will become of the, righteous, of the unrighteous man and the sinner? The godless man and the sinner. What will become of him? See, Peter is comparing the righteous and the ungodly in a way that emphasizes the vast judgment that will come upon the ungodly. If the righteous endure difficulty, and his is a lot of difficulty in this life, and their end is salvation, we're talking about God's people whom he loves. If their lot in life is difficulty, how much greater then is the judgment of those who are not righteous? How much greater will the judgment be upon those who have rejected the gospel of Christ? Those who have willfully rejected Christ will experience a devastatingly worse judgment at the great white throne. And it will be an eternal suffering that is just, it is righteous, and it will be executed by a righteous eternal God who is the king of the universe. People sometimes get the judgment of the ungodly confused a little bit and they think, well, it's just that rejection. So, so they're gonna go and they're gonna be in this realm that's kind of ruled by Satan and that's just not true. God is the God of heaven and God is the God of hell. God is going to execute judgment upon those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. Satan, when he is bound, will be in the deepest, darkest realms of hell. He will not be the life of the party. He will not be getting everybody going. He will not be the ruler of that domain. God rules hell. And God will execute judgment on those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. That is a sobering thought. <laughs> that this loving, gracious God is also holy. And that he is full of justice, full of righteousness, and full of wrath against those who reject him. And he is perfectly right in that wrath in that judgment because he establishes the standard for what that is to be in his holiness and so friends if you're here this morning and you haven't come to terms with the righteous judge then one day he will execute judgment upon you that will be eternal that will be unspeakable where you will suffer for all of eternity. But the beauty of the gospel is that the call goes out, doesn't it? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are called to preach 
the gospel. We are called to, to communicate the reality that, that Jesus came. Part of God's divine plan was to send his son. This is actually the fulcrum of his divine plan. The pinnacle of his divine plan was to send his son to live a righteous life. A perfectly righteous life. A holy life. So that he could then go to the cross and take upon himself the sin of all of those who would place their faith and trust in him for salvation. And so he, he calls out, he says, let all who are thirsty come to me. He says, I'm the bread of life. And he offers that for those years that he is here on this earth as he is doing his ministry he calls out time after time after time come follow me because he is gracious and he is humble and he desires as God said all men to come to repentance and friends if you're not in Christ if you have not come to terms with the righteous judge if you have not answered that call to come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest that Jesus gives to you so graciously so lovingly so faithfully then God will execute judgment on you as the ungodly and as the sinner and so come to him today. Turn from your sin. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin, yourself, believing, trusting in whatever it is you trust in. Turn away from that. Turn to Christ. Embrace him as Savior and Lord. And you will find salvation. You will find satisfaction for your soul. You will find the bread of life. You will find the fountain of water that never stops. And believers are encouraged, are, are to be encouraged that the end of, of their suffering, Peter says, is eternal reward. And his point here is to encourage those believers by, by driving home this vivid comparison of what's going to happen to the ungodly. This leads us then to a third reason for suffering that Peter has reiterated throughout the entirety of this epistle, and he summarizes here in verse 19, which is this, it is to encourage genuine believers. To encourage genuine believers. I love this here, verse 19. You can see the summary beginning with the word therefore. I'm about to summarize everything he's just stated in this paragraph about to spell out tangibly what these believers can be encouraged about. The first thing there to be encouraged about there, you see it in verse 19, is that they are suffering according to the will of God. See that, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. Those also who suffer, this is referring to those who are characterized by the suffering described in this text. This is believers who are suffering. Notice the encouragement. Their, their suffering is according to the will of God. Well, what is the will of God being referred to here, spe spe specifically here in, in verse 19? Well, the will of God here refers to the right response to suffering and the blessed road of suffering laid out in verses 12 through 16. He's summarizing what he has just stated. The will of God for believers in the midst of suffering is that they are to not be surprised. We saw that in verse 
12, that they are to be rejoicing continually in the midst of it and that they are blessed and that they are to wear the name of Christ like a badge of honor. That is what he's talking about when he says these believers who are suffering according to the will of God. All these things indicate suffering according to the will of God. And believers need to find great encouragement in that. There is no more fulfilling place for a Christian to be than to be walking in the center of the will of God. There's no more fulfilling place for a believer. Even when that place, even when the center of his will is suffering. That's what Peter's saying. That this these people who are suffering, they're, they're suffering according to the will of God. This is right where they should be. They should be encouraged by that. They should be full of joy for all of those reasons that he's, he's, he's given. The reality that they belong to Christ. They are his. Second, they are to be encouraged that they can entrust their souls to a God who is faithful and sovereign. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The sovereign God who is allowing the suffering that believers are called to endure for his purposes and their good, that God, that sovereign shepherd who we sang about this morning, he can be trusted fully. There's not a single aspect of your life that you cannot entrust to God. And he is bringing encouragement to these believers right now who are in the midst of this horrific suffering. And he's saying, you're suffering according to the will of God. <laughs> and you can entrust your souls to a faithful creator doing what is right. To entrust is to give something to someone for safekeeping, for care, and for protection. Believers can trust God to keep our souls, to care for us in the midst of suffering and, and to protect us to the end. And he is faithful and powerful enough to keep us in the shelter of his wings and then to usher us to heaven when it's our time. I love what God told Paul in Acts 22. I've been reading through Acts and I was reminded of that this week. That Acts 22, 11 that though he was suffering persecution in Jerusalem and, and people were seeking to get rid of him, that he needed to take heart because he was going to be used as a witness for Christ in Rome. That God is going to use him on earth for his purposes as long as he's predetermined to do so. And that's true of each one of us, isn't it? That God is going to keep us. He is going to protect us. We can entrust our souls to a faithful creator who loves us and cares for us. And until it's your predetermined time to go. And when you go, by the way, you get to be ushered in to eternal bliss with God in heaven. So until that time, guess what? You're safe. Yep, it might be hard. Yep, it might hurt. But until God has determined for you to go, you will be on this earth for the purpose of doing what is right. And you can entrust your souls to this faithful creator who is going to keep you. 
And yet, though it may be hard, though the road may be difficult, he's gonna keep you with perfect peace. He's going to keep you. He's going to, he's going to protect your soul. He's going to give you that joy. He's going to encourage you because you're walking in the will of God. We can find great comfort in that. We can entrust ourselves to this sovereign, good God by committing to live right in the midst of persecution, knowing that he will protect us and sustain us on this earth until it is time for us to be ushered into eternal glory. Doesn't that help you to live without worry? Doesn't that help you to live without anxiety? Yes, the life may be hard. Yes, it may be difficult. But you have been entrusted to this faithful creator who is going to use you for his glory and his purposes. And then when he's done, he's going to bring you up to be with him for all of eternity. That frees us, doesn't it? Frees us to do exactly what he's called us to do. Gives us a great encouragement. Finally, and this, this is not explicitly in our text, but is implicitly woven throughout this text and the entirety of this letter, this third piece of encouragement here. Believers are to be encouraged by the truth that suffering slowly pries our tight grip off the things of this world and ignites our hearts with anticipation for the glory to come in heaven. Suffering slowly pries our tight grip off of the things of this world and ignites our hearts with anticipation for the glory that is to come in heaven. We can be encouraged by that. We can find great joy in that. This is somewhat of a a silly illustration, but in my mind it paints the picture I have, for the majority of my life, been a diehard Broncos fan, Denver Broncos fan. I've always enjoyed following them. I've been, when I lived in Colorado, would go to their games very, very often. I've enjoyed the Super Bowl years. I've not enjoyed the last handful of years, however. So it has been terrible. And they have been a horrible football team. It's been interesting this is just such a vivid example in my mind. I, I can think back to early on in ministry when, when I was like irritated that I had to leave the Bronco game in the fourth quarter to go to church on Sunday night. Like I was stirred up. And there were sometimes <laughs> I was so stirred up because of how the game was going that I was going with a really, really bad attitude to church on Sunday night, sometimes leading youth. So I did that for a long time. And that's just how it was, and I was okay with that. I was okay that basically I had this idol in my life that was affecting me in such a, such a, a major way on Sundays. And over time, as they became terrible, <laughs> and I was suffering because of their terribleness, God pried that love for the Denver Broncos away. Still enjoy watching them, still follow them, but I would so much rather be here on a Sunday night than sitting there watching them make idiots out of themselves like they do so often. And I know that's silly, but isn't that what suffering does? It just, it just pries our hands. And for you, 
It's something totally different. Your job, your career, your school, your, your significant other, your future significant other, whatever it may be, you, you want so badly. I hear young people say, I don't want to go to heaven yet because, because I want to get married and I want to have kids. And that's a great ambition. That's awesome. We promote that heavily here, by the way. We're very encouraged by those things. But suffering in God's providence pries our hands off of all that materialism. And when it does that, God in his kindness elevates the glory of Christ in such a profound way that all we want is to be with him. God is so gracious to do that. Because the glory of heaven doesn't even compare to anything that we have on this earth. How tightly are you holding to the things of this world? Yes, God has given us all things to enjoy, but do you hold them with an open hand? Do you allow suffering to produce in you a greater anticipation for the perfect life that is to come? Friends, we are certainly challenged by Pastor Peter in this text to stand firm in the midst of distress, aren't we? To rightly respond, to walk down the right road, and to embrace these divine reasons for suffering. Now, as we close our time this morning and this fourth chapter of this encouraging letter, I'll end where we began, which is being encouraged by this Puritan Samuel Rutherford to suffer well for Christ. He said in that same letter concerning affliction, your afflictions are not eternal. Time will end them. And so shall ye at length see the Lord's salvation. His love sleepeth not, but is still working for you. His salvation will not tarry nor linger. And suffering for him is the noblest cross that is out of heaven. Be committed to suffering well for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for compelling us to walk through this life, the difficulties that come, the persecution that we may have to endure. Thank you that we are encouraged to do that well and we're not just left trying to figure out what that means but that you specify that through your servant Peter. Just laying out for us, here's why, here's what. And Father, our hearts are encouraged. Our hearts are lifted before the throne. And we anticipate the return of Christ. We anticipate being with him for all of eternity, but Father, as we remain, as long as you have us here, according to your predetermined plan, Father, help us to be faithful to suffer well for Christ, not because we enjoy it, not because we want to wish that upon ourselves or upon anyone else, but because that is what you use to purify us. That is what you use to condemn those who don't obey the gospel. That 
is what you use so often in life to encourage us concerning who you are and that the life to come is so much better than the life we have now. We love you, Lord. Set our hearts, souls upon Christ. Be with us now as we head to a main worship service this morning. and May we be prepared to bring glory to Christ in that time. In Jesus' name, amen.